Well, I'm going to conclude this morning uh, the series we've been teaching for a while on honoring the kingdom of God. I think we're all aware that America or the American church is grossly in love with carnality and ease. It's how you build a big church when the Holy Ghost isn't moving. And so I'm trying the best I can to lean against our nation's churches and lean us back into right standing with God. No church, no denomination, no movement ever apostatizes or rejects God overnight. It's always a little bit at a time. It's the adage of boiling the frog in the pot of water. You don't throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, he'll jump out. But if you can raise it one degree at a time, a degree per minute, a degree per two minutes, that frog will just sit there till he's dead. Don't even know what's going on. We certainly see that in the church. It's, it's being perverted a little bit at a time. And because our nation is addicted to numbers and our ministers are addicted to fame, then if we have the most numbers and the greatest impact or notoriety in our telecast, then God must be with us. And those men have failed to read Jeremiah and Ezekiel to recognize God says, you guys are doing a lot, but I'm not with you. You're prophesying, but it's not me. You're ministering, but I'm not behind you. Uh, in fact, the Lord said over and over again in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I'm against you guys. You can be a minister and God be against you. You can be a pastor and God say, woe unto the shepherds. Uh, it's a terrifying place to be. It's why we still teach repentance, unlike the heretics of the hyper-grace movement. You still need to repent. You still need to say, I'm sorry. You still need to tell your spouse you're sorry. You still need to tell your children you're sorry, your loved ones you're sorry, the stranger you're sorry. You need to be quick to apologize. Even though we have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, we still have a work to do. That doesn't mean we're saved by works. I think we understand it. I don't have time to get into all that foolishness about, well, we're not supposed to do any work. All right, then just lay at home and develop bed sores and then die of gangrene if you're that allergic to any kind of work. First Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's try to steer the nation, or at least our church, back into the veneration and worship of God Almighty. To venerate something means to make it honorable and worthy of respect. God does not need our veneration, but our veneration of God certainly benefits us and it, it, it dictates or um, demonstrates how humble we are. God's a self-existent one. If you didn't know, he doesn't need anything on this little blue marble called earth. If he were to wipe this thing out, he'd miss nothing. It would affect him in no way. His heart would be grieved, perhaps. We could make that argument. He has no, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But it wouldn't affect his deity. It wouldn't affect his personage. He is God. So he doesn't need our worship, but he's worthy of it. I think the biggest problem is when we or churches claim to be Christian and we claim to love God, but we don't venerate him, we don't hallow him, we don't worship him, we don't honor him, that's when the problem arises. That technically becomes blasphemy and taking the Lord's name in vain. We're Southerners. You know, Some of you are from overseas or from Yankeeville. But traditionally, Southerners, we're taught that taking the Lord's name in vain is using his name as a cuss word. Is that right? Is that our culture? That's a sliver of truth. It's horrific. It's blasphemous to say GD or JC. But in the Old Testament, taking the Lord's name in vain is to invoke it in a vow and then not keep your end of the vow. Because to take the Lord's name in vain and technically to blaspheme, both in the Greek, which is blasphemio, or the Hebrew means to drill holes in something so that it holds no value. So when you and I call ourselves Christians, but we don't back it up, that's blasphemy. When you and I say, I'm a Christian business owner, but you embezzle money, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. When you and I say, I swear to God, and we invoke his name upon a vow, and we don't uphold it, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's using his credibility to vouch for us that we might get what we want, and then we double-cross people, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. JC and GD, that's petty. It, it makes our ears tingle, makes our heart grieve, and I can't stand to hear a GD in a movie or a TV show. I don't know how they get away with it. But we're way more guilty of blasphemy and taking the Lord's name in vain than our little Southern tradition would like to think. 
Because anytime we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and we tell all of our coworkers, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a deacon, I'm an elder, I go to our church, I teach Sunday school, and then you go and you act disrespectful on the job, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. You'd be better off not letting anybody know what you were and witnessing to them in private than coming in there with your pomp and circumstance, blowing your trumpet, waving your flag, and saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. The worst bosses I ever worked for were Christians. The best bosses I ever worked for were pagans. And I would work for those pagans again before I'd work for those Christians again. And that's blasphemous, that that's the reputation of the Christian bosses I worked for. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Let's just stop there. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This word sanctify is the word we've been teaching for five and six weeks. This means hallow God in your heart. Make him holy in your heart. Now, God's already holy. God is already set apart. By the very fact that he is God and we're made out of clay, sets him apart. So he doesn't need us to set him apart in our heart for him to be set apart. He needs us to set him apart in our heart so that we might be representatives of God, that we might be blessed of God, that we might represent God. The context of this verse is persecution, that when you're persecuted, how you steel yourself like a man, how you gird your loins up is you set apart God in your heart, and then you're going to be able to endure a lot more. That's the context. I want to take the passage out of context because it fits our overall topic, which is making the things of God holy again. The things of God are holy. That doesn't mean we treat them as holy. It does take knowledge and training to recognize what is holy and what is not holy, just like you and I have to be taught how to respect things in museums. It takes an ant, uh, a historian or antiquarian to look at something and say, uh, don't handle that with gloves or without gloves because that's worth a million dollars and your finger acid will dissolve it. They have to instruct you how to, be, how to venerate something. A, a couple years ago, we were in Washington, D.C., and I went to the American History Museum there at the um, Smithsonian, and I wanted to go see Old Glory, our, our first real flag, you know, from the, Civil, uh, the uh, Revolution. And I remember being in D.C. as a child, and I saw the same flag hanging up in the foyer. I remember, I thought that's where it would be, but they have since had to move it into a dark room, lay it down on a giant, it's huge, it's about the size of half this sanctuary. <clears throat> and they have to lay it down on a, a board of some kind and tilt it up so you can view it because the ultraviolet light and humidity is beginning to cause it to degrade. It's already in tatters because it's old glory. But I got emotional seeing the flag. This is just about five years ago. I got emotional. I started sobbing because that's, that's our national heritage. That's old glory. And everything's dark lit. You're down this hallway. And so I take my camera out to take a picture of it. And there's a security guard standing right there. He said, sir, he snaps at me, sir, you can't take pictures of that. I didn't argue with him because I knew exactly, I instantly registered the flash photography will further degrade the fibers. This is a man, the security guard, working for the Smithsonian, had to teach me how to honor something that is sacred. Now, if you're not an American, or maybe if you're woke, you'll see that flag and you'll want to spit on it or shrug at it, but I'm an American, and I'm not woke. I was taught to respect our nation, and I was taught U.S. history, so to me, that's part of our history. So to see it, my heart venerates it. It's just fabric. It's just old dye. Very famous people in world history have their hand on it, have touched it, have handled it. There's a lot to it, but my heart knows how to honor it, and I'm not going to argue with this security guard who said, uh, sir, you can't take pictures. There's no photography in here. No problem. So then I bought me a big Tervis mug that had a replica on it. That I don't even know where that thing is at now. We don't have to honor God, but it benefits us if we do. We don't have to worship him, but it benefits us if we do. It benefits him nothing. He's God. How many times did he want to start things over throughout the Old Testament? I'll just wipe them out, start over. Wipe them out, start over. Wipe them out. They're so wicked, I won't miss them a bit. I'll restart with Noah. I'll restart with Moses. I'll restart. I'll restart. We have to be taught how to honor God because we call ourselves Christians. And if we call ourselves Christians and we don't hallow him or venerate him or sanctify him, we're automatically living in blasphemy. We're living in taking the Lord's name in vain. 
And I would put this out there, reject it if you want to. I would say many, many churches in our land, by existing the way they do, they exist in blasphemy. They exist. The very means by which they do things is taking the Lord's name in vain. When you invoke the name of Christ upon your church, but your church looks like Cirque du Soleil, and your church is held in reputation, not as a healing center for dirty people to come, but as a dirty center where people are entertained, you are blasphemous in your mere existence. And I command repentance to come to them. I call them to repentance. This verse says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Hallow him. Venerate him. Revere him. Set him apart in your hearts. If the command comes, it's because we often sway from that. You don't command something that isn't a problem. You command something that is a problem so that the commandment brings with it grace and anointing to obey and make the adjustment. But Peter is having to tell New Testament believers, early church Christians who are under persecution, constantly keep God hallowed, holy, set apart, revered in your heart. We have come through a generation now where we were taught we were the friend of God. And that's ruined a lot of stuff. There is an element that we are the friend of God. But when that's the hottest song for 20 years, you've ruined the body of Christ. That song might be fitting for the outcast who doesn't know who God is. And, and even as the opening lyric says, could it be that you would call me, uh, that I'm a stranger, however it goes, that you would call me to you. I, there might be an element of hope, but when you're teaching dirty, perverted, adulterating, homosexual, pervert, tattoo, piercing Christians that they're the friend of God, you're lying to them. You need to give them a song called I am the, I'm in trouble with God. He calls me toast. <laughs> Why don't we have a song called, I am the soldier of God. I am the sheep of God. I am the body part of God. Why don't we have a song called, He is a man of war. Why don't we have a song called, He is the righteous judge. Why do we always pick and choose the elements of God we want to magnify? Is it so we can be dirty and perverted and, and just weak? and build a mega complex to our name so we can get on the magazine of Relevant or cover of Relevant magazine that I'm one of the top 10 fastest growing churches in America. All those churches that are the fastest growing, I want to know who is sleeping with who. And how many did you sleep with last month? Is it the worship leader? Is it the choir director? Is it your children's worker? Who are you having sex with, pastor? Because that's the only way you have a fast growing church in this nation, especially in cities that already have a lot of churches in them. To honor someone or something means we set them apart as different or special. And the argument we've made for the last several weeks is that the, the current American church experience is not one of setting God apart. Church isn't set apart. Everything the modern church is doing is trying to look as much like the world as possible. I was even once in a church that had brought in Disney designers to help with their children's department. I might be able to wink at that a little bit and say, I get it. You want to have a very playful Noah's Ark exhibit. I get it. But why are we going to the world? If you got the money to hire Disney designers, yay you. But do you have the Holy Ghost in your service? Because if not, your Disney design Noah Ark theme park can go to hell with you. It's how we treat things when they are important to us. This is an instinctual but the, uh, by the way, uh, we, tr we honor people or things must be taught. It's instinctual to honor things. It's part of the human nature. We venerate things. We look up to people. Children automatically have heroes. They look up to big people. It's just part of the human condition. But the way by which we honor those people or things must be taught, just like the, the security guard at the Smithsonian. My heart wants to honor, oh, glory, he has to tell me how to do it. You do it by not taking a picture. You want a picture, there's one in the gift, gift store or pick you up a Tervis mug on the way out. Just to be in the presence of the flag makes my heart tremble to think about what it represents as an American. This is where our heart's distinguished because woke churches now would think I'm a racist for being respectable of our, one of our first flags. That's how divided our nation is even in the churches. I'm a racist because the American flag makes me weep. We love our parents, don't we? But they teach us how to honor them. And we honor them with the names we refer to them and how we talk to them and the gifts we give them and the pictures we draw for them. 
This is how we sanctify or set our parents apart in our hearts. Our parents are not the neighbors. Our parents are not our teachers in the school. Our parents are not the coaches. Our parents are special. We color pictures for our kids. We call them mommy and daddy, and those are terms of honor. But we love them, but we have to be taught how to honor them. We love our grandparents, but our families and our culture teach us how to honor them with the titles we use. And grandparents will always pick their title because they don't want to be, no grandparent envisions themselves as old as they remember their great-great-grandmother. So they want cool terms. They don't want to be called like granny. I'm just 48. Don't call me granny. (laughs) Or papaws. I'm just 60. I don't want to be called a papaw yet. So even the grandparents nowadays, they select the terms they use for their children to honor them with and grandchildren. We honor them with the questions we ask, the advice we seek, and the gifts we buy for them. This is how we sanctify our family patriarch and our family matriarch. We honor them, but we have to be taught how to. If you don't sanctify or set things apart, then you have no honor for it. We honor things by treating them differently, and the kingdom ought to be identical. We love our spouse, but we must be taught how to honor them. Titus says that, that the older women should teach the younger women how to love their husband and their children. Because women love their husband and their kids, they just don't know how to. But in order to qualify to be a Titus II woman, you have to know how to love your husband too. And you can be old and not know how to love your husband. You can be old and be just as big a jerk at home as the young woman you're trying to help, in which case God will never use you to help them. Your private attitude will have publicly demoted you. We love our spouse, but we must be taught how to honor them. We sanctify or set them apart in our heart by how we treat them. Dishonor will treat our spouse as common, and we don't treat our spouse as common. That's the only one you get, and that's God's child, either a son, if that's your husband, or God's daughter, if that's your wife. And so you have to be mindful that when you disrespect your spouse, you're disrespecting one of God's kids. And he doesn't take to that too kindly, just like we don't like it when our kids gang up on one or the other or they're rude. My kids will get spanked for disrespecting or being rude to their sibling faster than anything else. How would you like God to spank you for disrespecting and being rude to his kid, your spouse? Oh, they'll keep taking it until they don't. Amen. At some point, you've got to quit being a hick. Because that's what a lot of this attitude in our church is. It's white trash. It's Jerry Springer, hick, trailer park. No, I don't have a problem if you live there. Just don't act like it. You know what I'm talking about. There are nice trailer parks, and then there are Upper Cumberland trailer parks. And you can drive a nice car and be white trash in your heart. So repent of that. You live in this region, but you don't have to act like it. You're supposed to have the gospel in your heart. Amen. If we love a sports team, the fans will teach us how to honor them with the jerseys we buy. And the chants, every team has their own chant. And the cheers and the mascots and the team traditions and the star players This is how we sanctify that team in our hearts and we make it our own. We absorb that culture. And this is what we do when we're on a penalty play. And this is what we do when we get a touchdown. And this is what we do. Every team has its own little culture and tradition. And when that's your team, you learn all of it. And you know whose jersey is the best to have. And you know whose autograph you want. And you know who just got traded and who's about to get tossed. It's because it's your team. And that's how you venerate it. When you have no respect for a team, you don't know any of it, you don't care about any of it, and you just make fun of the team. If you're like me, when your team plays your best friend's enemy team and we beat them, you take pictures of your kids pointing at them. Look at that score, and then you send that to your friends all over the country, and that's how you maintain a good man friendship. You insult each other's teams like I had anything to do with that win. We can, uh, let me keep reading here. If we love our country, or your country, because you might be from somewhere else, Our culture teaches us how to set it apart in our hearts collectively. That is called patriotism. And there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. You ought to be proud of the country you're from. We learn the history, the national anthem, the Pledge of Allegiance, the things that make that nation great. And there are no perfect nations. But there is certainly a hierarchy of greatness in the world today. And if you want to know who's great and who stinks... 
Just look to see who's fleeing which countries, if they're even allowed to escape, and whose borders they're lining up at to get in. Amen. We must be taught how to honor our cars, our homes, and our possessions and treat it good. We ought to teach our kids how to take care of stuff. The more we love something, the better care we give it. The more we love something, the better care we give it. The more we love our spouse, the better care. The more we love our kids, the better care. The more we love our car, the better care. The more we love our nation, the better care. The more we love our church, the better care. The more we love our God, the better care. I treat my wife in ways I don't treat anybody else. I treat my children in a different way. I treat my truck in a different way than I treat your car because it's mine. And we ought to treat our God different than we treat anybody else in our entire life. But the, the sin of the modern church is, Romans 10, bringing God down from above and making him come. Let's look at Romans 10 real quick. These will probably be the last two verses we turn to. This is the sin, and this is what is unraveling all of our honor that our nation has had for God. For all of our sins and foibles and issues, we have led the world in most of what is good for the last 200 years. And all of it was rooted in an honor and a fear for God. We had a lot of denominations we were founded. They weren't all right. There was some weird stuff with the Puritans, weird stuff with the Quakers. Baptists came along. They got weird Methodism, weird. But they all loved God and feared God. What we all had, though, was a fear and a reverence. We knew God was God. We were not. And you honored God and you feared him. You didn't make some stupid song about being his best buddy because God doesn't need a best buddy. He's a self-existent one. And by the way, do we even know what a friend is anymore, the way we treat each other? We're Facebook friends. We just made up a new kind of friend. I'm friends with them on Facebook, which means you don't even know the name of their wife. You don't know what they do for a living. They just happen to have an algorithm match you guys, and you got another follower. Yay, you. Is that the kind of friend you are with God, an algorithm Facebook buddy? I'm a follower. You mean like you are on social media? Are you a real follower of Christ? These words are losing their meaning, and we have to lean against it to rekindle the value of what it means to be a real friend of God and a real follower of Christ. Because real friends don't block each other, and real followers will die. And I don't think that's the American church. Romans 10. Verse 6 says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in your heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Who? This is what faith forbids. You don't say, Let's bring Christ down from above. He's already done this, it's already been done. You can't ascend into heaven without him, and you don't dare bring him down from above. Christ has come down from above once. When he took on him the form of the seed of Abraham was born of a virgin. He does not come down to us anymore, but that is the main thrust of modern churches. We want to make God as common as possible, as easily as accessible as possible, as comfortable as possible, and that violates verse 6. That is to bring Christ down from above. At this point, now that he has ascended, we ascend. Everything we do is an upward calling. We can claim we love God, but we must be taught how to honor him. If we don't honor him, we cannot convincingly claim we love, respect, worship, or adore him. I cannot treat my wife like trash and tell people I love her. I cannot make my wife walk on eggshells seven days a week and be able to convincingly say, I love and respect and adore my wife. It's a lie. I may be trying to, but I don't actively do it. All of these actions indicate we treat the subject of those affections differently than the average person in our life. Honor, respect, worship, adoration. Thankfully, the Bible reveals to us how God wants to be honored. We cannot add to, as Christians, or take away from the Bible lest we become a new generation of Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses. And I'm very convinced we are actively creating a new gospel and a new religion right now in this country. It is slowly rocking away from the foundations of the Word of God. Now, pardon the horrible example, but it's how I see it. In 1994, I think it was 94, 93, 94, they launched UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. I got to watch the fourth UFC live in 1995 when I was doing judo and jiu-jitsu. And in the early days, I think we're all familiar with UFC, cage fighting. In the early days of UFC, 
The idea was to see who would win, a karate expert or a kung fu master, Muay Thai or sumo, Eskrima and Kali, or would it be street fighting? Would it be jujitsu versus uh, uh, any one of your Russian arts? And so they all came in for, for about 10 or 12 of these matches that were about once a year, maybe two a year. They all came in in their individual uniforms and gis. You could tell by what they were wearing what their practice was. That dude's a sumo. That guy's Muay Thai. That guy's Kung Fu. That guy's a street fighter. Uh, that guy's a, an American uh, boxer. That guy's Greco-Roman. That guy's Jiu-Jitsu. That guy's uh, Judo. Uh, that guy's uh, 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 Salat. You could tell by them. You fast forward now, 27 years. It looks nothing like it did in its origins. It is all blended together, and they all come out there, girls and guys alike now, with the same shorts, the same gloves, and the same style. Didn't happen overnight, but we've blended and made a whole new art altogether. And now uh, ultimate fighting is totally separate from judo and jiu-jitsu, from Picat Salat, from Eskrima Kali, from Muay Thai, from Karate, from Kung Fu, uh, from uh, all those. It's totally different. It's its own thing now. That's how you build a new religion. And that's what we're doing in this nation with the seeker church and the hip church. We're slowly drifting. We're, we're becoming a new set of Mormons and a new set of J-dubs. There's a knock-knock joke in there somewhere. I don't know if you saw what I just did there. It's, it's, whatever. <laughs> we're now teaching a Jesus that doesn't demand repentance. We're now teaching a Jesus that is not holy. We're now teaching a Jesus that winks at your fornication when you're the preacher. We're teaching a Jesus now that doesn't want you to speak in tongues. Uh, we're teaching a Jesus that doesn't expect a high standard. We've got a totally different Jesus, but we still call him Jesus. We're creating a new cult. By cult, I don't mean a controlling mechanism. I just mean a new system of beliefs. One of my preacher friends said, uh, the modern guys have a Bible. They just don't preach it. They use it. Yeah. We need to learn. Remember, you cannot dishonor a kingdom without dishonoring its king. And you cannot dishonor a king's representative without dishonoring the king they represent. We need to learn how to honor God's Sabbath, God's house, God's worship, and God's leaders. And this final message here is just kind of a review of everything I taught the last five or six weeks. So we're going to burn through this quickly with some new ideas, but this might be a one good all-inclusive sermon to get out there for your seeker-friendly friend who's slowly going to hell with a cappuccino in his hand dressed like a hipster. Not against cappuccinos. I'm not against fashion or style. But when I say American church experience and you all envision the exact same thing, from Seattle to Cook Vegas to Miami to Virginia to Texas, it all looks and smells the same and there's no holiness involved in it. It's a new kind of spirit. Honor the Sabbath. Let's cover this real quick. The Sabbath day is a day of rest. It is the first thing hallowed or sanctified in the whole Bible. God is the one who hallowed it, making it different from all the other days of the week. What made it hallowed or sacred is that God made it different than the other six days of the week. That's what makes things hallowed, venerated, and honored. You treat them different. Hopefully you treat your spouse different in a good way. Some of you treat your spouse different in a bad way. You're the biggest jerk in the world to your spouse, but you're friendly to strangers. You need to reverse that. Don't be a jerk to anybody. Let me adjust that. <laughs> but definitely not your spouse. How did God make it different? He rested. God worked six days, then he rested. Six days he worked, and then he made the seventh day different by resting. As we are all well aware, this became an ordinance for Israel. They were to take one day a week and rest on that day, reflecting back to God the value he had already prescribed to that day. They made it holy by acting like him. They made that day holy. It was God's day. It was already holy, but they made it holy, and it was an act of worship because they said, Lord, we're going to act like you the way you do on the Sabbath. That's what made it worship. 
There was no power in working or not working. It was a reflection of God, what God said. That's all our Christian walk anyways. We look at what God says, we say the same thing. We just want to be like our dad. That was also their primary day of worship. Exodus 20, verse 8, just write this down. The Lord says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, to hallow it. It is the Sabbath. The word Sabbath just means rest. That's all it means. It means rest. It is a rest. It is the rest of the Lord thy God, the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed and sanctified it. That's Genesis 28, 9, and 10. But Exodus 31, 17 adds something different, brings out some more. It's worth noting. We'll read it. You just write it down. God said, the Sabbath is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested, and he was refreshed. Now, I, I read that, and I thought, wait, does God get tired? It's what the Bible says, Exodus 31, 17. On it he rested, and he was refreshed. That is why it is an important thing that we take one day a week and we treat it different. Now we've got New Testament uh, boundaries and passes, if you will. We're not Saturday people. The Seventh-day Adventists are. I don't disparage that. Pick one day a week and honor God on it. But he was refreshed, and I still don't have an explanation. How does God, the self-existent, omnipotent one, get refreshed? But that's what the Bible says. And you study it in the Hebrew, and that's what the Hebrew says. There's no if ands, or buts about it. Lest we fear becoming Torah-observant Seventh-day Adventists, we'll be reminded of what Paul taught in Colossians 2.16, verses, this is NIV, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you with regard to Sabbath days. And then Paul also said, Romans 4, 14, 5, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So we see there that at least one day should be more sacred than the other. And Paul said in Colossians, it doesn't matter which day it is. We as Christians follow in the early church tradition of the Lord's day, the day he was raised from the dead, the first day of the week, which is why we still do church on Sunday to honor the Lord's resurrection. And in a sense, we celebrate Easter every Sunday. But there, the heart behind all this, it's a principle. What's the principle is we take one day a week and we treat it different than any other day of the week. And the way we treat it different is not by treating it worse than the other day a week. We treat it as holy unto God. We're already doing that, but it's good to have an understanding of it. We do it different because we get up. We dress up. This is the day the Lord's made. This is our Sabbath. We're going to go worship. Our kids are going to Sunday school. We're going to wear the best we have. We're going to have money in our hand for an offering. We're going to be serving in the back. God's going to answer me. I'm going to feel his presence during worship. This is not how we think Saturday morning. This is not how we think Monday morning. This is not how we think even on Wednesday night, Wednesday morning. No. Sunday is our Sabbath. It is not the specific day that is critical now in the New Testament, though we do celebrate the resurrection on what John the Apostle called the Lord's Day. What is critical is that we find the heart behind God establishing a Sabbath day. It was the first thing he ever hallowed or made holy. Keep in mind, all worship and service of God is simply reflecting back to God and into the earth around us what he has already established and proclaimed. So what is the heart behind the original Sabbath? For the agrarian-based Jew, and remember, that's who they were. They were agricultural people. Not working one day a week took tremendous faith and trust in God because if you don't work, neither do you eat. For the Jew, hallowing one day a week and resting and doing no work took tremendous faith in their God that he would make up the difference. It was an act of faith. When you're harvesting for existence, that's a seven-day-a-week job. This was an act of faith. God established before there was ever people. He established it before there was ever agriculture to be harvested. Even in the garden, there was no reason to fear or fret. There was no work to be done in the harvesting. But the Sabbath was established before the fall. 
Our modern society is no longer agrarian. Even our farmers have GPS-driven remote tractors. They harvest on their own. Everything's automated on the big farms. So how do we capture the heart of honoring a Sabbath? How do we venerate one day a week above the others, making at least one of those days sacred, as opposed to perhaps the Roman zealot who saw every day as sacred? The, the inference is every, one day a week, at least one day a week has to be sacred to God. And this is where we have a problem with the modern church because they are not making their Sunday Sabbath. They're not making their Sunday holy. They're making their Sunday as carnal and as relaxed and as dressed down and as standardized down as possibly could, could come up with. It's entertainment driven. It's purple lights. It's smoke. It's trendy concerts. The worship's not even worship. It's a concert. You, you have your coupon for free drinks in the foyer. <laughs> T-shirt cannons as icebreakers. Rock and roll high. I mean, just production levels that would just make Vegas proud. Even on their Sunday, they're not venerating God. And when you don't venerate a Sabbath or a one day a week, everything falls after that. Simple. How do we do this? We make that one day a week different than anything else we do all week. We view that one day differently. It was one out of seven so hard. We dress for it differently. This is why we also we have permission to be casual on prayer nights and casual on Wednesday nights. It's not our Sabbath. It's another service time, and I don't care if you dress up for it. And obviously, you only dress down so low. This isn't Walmart at 2 a.m. If me asking someone to take a hat off causes them to flee the house of God, I sure hate to think that hat's more powerful than the gospel of God. I'm just reminded of the book of Acts. When they were under the conviction of God and they wanted God, they said, what must we do? Take that hat off. Oh, that's egregious and legalistic. No. Keep your hat on then. I guess you don't want what we got. Do those kind of morons take their hat off if their boss asks them? So much pride in some of our fashion that we can't be changed just a little your boss asks you to dress up as the Easter bunny for your job, you do it because you serve money. We dress up for that Sabbath differently. We awake earlier for it. You hear that, you laters? The ones I always harp on because you're always dragging a day late, dollar short. Miss my meetings, don't even a call to apologize to me for not even showing up when I had my whole day planned around you. We wake up earlier. That might actually help some of you be on time for a change. We make it the highest day of our week. We prepare our heart to come to the house of God on that day with our tithe and offering, with a heart excited to worship, with a mind ready to receive instruction. If we can rediscover the sacredness that God assigned to at least one day a week, the rest of our honor will begin to fall into place. And we might actually find the same refreshing he did when he hallowed that day at the beginning of creation. If it'll refresh God, you better believe it'll refresh us. I don't get nothing out of church because you don't come with any kind of veneration in your heart. When you come excited, you get something. When you come ramped up, amped up, jazzed up, you get something out of it. You, I mean, you're like, this is the day I'm going to get it. This is, the Lord's going to speak to me today. When you go to a museum because you like what's in that museum, you come away with an experience that you just still ruminate over and you, you think on. But when, when we have taught the American church to casual their walk with God and to expect less and to sit back and we don't want to put any pressure on you because that's not the love of God, they say. We're not going to challenge you or, or convict you. Why would we do that? That's not the love of God. Then when you come to church, you get nothing. And when you get nothing, you don't come back. And now they've got to do something bigger in their showmanship to get the crowds back. Even your, if you don't recognize it, even in your amusement parks, they have to build a new coaster every two to three years to keep the crowds coming back. 
because they'll get bored riding the same coasters over and over again. The modern, carnal, purpose-driven church is the same way. they got to come up with the next gimmick to keep their bored, lukewarm Christians excited about mediocrity. So they invented the nacho bar, I suppose. Amen. Honor the house of God. Here's our next one we looked at. We're just reviewing this morning. Some of this is just preaching to the choir. All of us could come up higher in our honor. We have to be taught what is valuable so we can know when we have it and then to fully appreciate it when it's, when it's given to us. Museums are just a great example. If you appreciate anything about history or sciences and you've read about it in a book, when you go to a museum and there's the thing you've been studying in social studies or class, you have an appreciation for it. And your heart says, guess what I got to go see this weekend? Do you know what the Hope Diamond is? To get to go see the Hope Diamond, largest blue diamond in the world, was part of a bigger diamond that was called like the Jewel of India, and they cut it up. To be able to see the, the Hope Diamond in the Smithsonian and to know what it is and see this is a blue diamond, it's 50 carats or whatever, you get to say, I saw the Hope Diamond in person. I touched six inches away from it till the security guy got nervous with me. <laughs> I was going to reenact a movie I saw once, except I got tasered real quick. <laughs> Or uh, to appreciate anything, you have to be taught it and then understand why it's on display. Honor the house of God. This is God's house. used to be a storefront. I mean, it's still a storefront, but it's not a shop because we're not market-driven. We're not selling you anything. We're commanding you everything. (laughs) Amen. A house of worship reflects the God worshiped therein. Much like our personal homes reflect our personality, taste, and values, a God's house automatically reflects his personality, taste, and values. It is, after all, his house. So what does it say when our local churches have become entertainment shows? There's a problem when you go into a house of worship and you're worried about getting sunburned because there's so much purple lights. Do I need to wear those little tanning booth goggles? There's a problem with that. When it comes to doing church and building our local churches, it would probably benefit us to keep a few scriptures in mind. They may help to serve as guardrails in the curves of secular temptation. So it's a real simple passage out of Corinthians. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So why would a church want to be yoked with how the unbelievers do it? Righteousness shouldn't fellowship with unrighteousness. So why would we look to the unrighteous for how to do a church service? Light shouldn't have communion with darkness. So why would light go to the dark realms to see how to do a church service, to pull off another production? We have pastors of production now, if you didn't know. Didn't see that in the book of Ephesians or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But now we have pastors, production pastor, internet, social media pastor, communications pastor. How about we just use the term director because those aren't ministry gifts. Those are secular trained administrators. Use them as you need to, but don't you dare call them a pastor. Christ shouldn't have any concord with Belial. So why are we looking to Ozzy Osbourne's concerts as a way to do Sunday morning service? Believers should have no part with infidels. So why do we go to the infidels' concerts to figure out how to produce a show? Some of you are too young. You missed the opportunity to go to Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. I grew up going to them. I've probably been to five or ten Ringling Brothers. It was always promoted as the greatest. Nope, that's Sunday morning now. But even with Ringling Brothers, they always had to have something different every year or two. I remember when they brought in the biggest elephant they could find, and he was called King Tusk. I saw King Tusk. I think it was a gimmick as most of the circus was, but he had these massive tusks, but I think he had on tusk extensions. <laughs> I remember this. We went and saw him, King Tusk. Kind of a play on words, King Tut, biggest elephant, King Tusk. It was a bejeweled golden extension. I like, mm, those are like Lee Presson's for, for animals. because those. No longer does the circus exist under the tent. It now exists in the megachurch. The megachurch is now the circus. It's the greatest show on earth. Not much of God there. They give Jesus a shout out every once in a while. 
If, you, if you're interested in learning more about Christ, we'd like you to come with us to this side room over here where, where we're not ashamed of Jesus. We're just not ashamed of him in that room, but out here with everybody, all the city influences, we're embarrassed. So we won't say much about him. But if you're still interested after this shenanigan we just pulled off, why don't you go over here and the two folks in our church that keep us afloat through intercession, deep intercession, they might actually be able to lead you to Christ because I don't know how to. I'm sleeping with the secretary. That's the American church. That's the American church. Not everybody, just the stereotype. And there's always a huge track of truth to every stereotype. How about the temple of God has no agreement with idols? Why would we go to the pagan temple to figure out how to do church for Jesus Christ? Therefore, Paul says, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean, and I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What happens if a church or its members don't come out from among the unclean? Will we be received as children? Will we be received by a God? I want us to be reminded we can be genuine children of God, but fathered by a demon. You can be the child of God, but fathered by someone else. Parented. We'll use that word as a distinction. You can be a genuine child of the Most High God and then parented by a wicked stepfather. And just because you once got born again doesn't mean you're allowing God to parent you. The house of God should not be patterned after the world. God's house should be a place where God is present. This is the most crucial God's house is a place where it is hallowed by man, being regarded as holy and sacred. The house of God is a place where sacrifice, not convenience or comfort, is promoted and expected. The house of God is a place where commitment to God is promoted and expected. The house of God is a place known for holiness, sacrifice, and the presence of God. Let all the dirty people can, that can come to the house of God, but they shouldn't still be just as dirty six months from now. They either repent after a service or two or they leave within a month or two. If they can come to your church and stay dirty, you have zero medicine in the house. If we are honoring the Sabbath as the house of God, then the local church should not be a place of worldliness, entertainment, or casualness. If we're honoring the Sabbath as different than any other day of the week, then there should be nothing about this day that we could hook the world to. If this is the Lord's day, the one day a week we treat as different from everything else, then especially in the house of God, there should be nothing here that we say, that reminds me of Netflix. That I was in Vegas at Cirque du Soleil. I went to the county fair. I was at that concert at the coffee shop in Nashville. This reminds me a lot of that. If this is sacred, then bless God we make it sacred. Especially if we say with a cheap mouth, we want the presence of God. If we want the presence of God, there should be nothing common or secular or sultry about what we do in the Lord's house on his day. There should be nothing worldly, entertaining, or casual about the house of God. That's reserved for other areas of life. If the local church is just like every other place then there is no distinction. God and his house have become common and all honor has been lost. There ought to be, you ought to be able to tell the presence changes when you walk into the house of God. You ought to be able to feel the presence of God. And a lot of churches you walk in and the vibe is an anticipation for entertainment. And, and the new worship teams, or the worship team's new re release album when half the team's sleeping with the other half of the worship team. We're not going to have God in these churches. We're going to be creating a new religion, a new cult. Have we so given up on establishing the kingdom of God in the earth that in order to make it look like the church is affecting every area of life, we've actually just allowed every area of life to affect the church and in effect bring the total standard of the modern church down? The house of God should be the highest place in our weekly life. Going to church to worship God is an upward calling. We come up. That's why we dress our best on Sunday. I don't care what your best is. You just give it your best. We worship our best, even if we're going through hell on earth. 
We worship with all of our heart. We do everything we can. We make it different. Even if all we have is a couple nickels we got out of the, the cubby in our car on the way in, that's our offering. We're excited. That's not my tithe, but I got a 39 cent offering, and I'm excited about it. Yeah. Oh, and tonight I get to serve in the back. That's how we make this different. Can you, I mean, the difference between that and the flock in, herd in, experience and experience, and then herd out is so drastic. Honoring worship. I got another page or two, so just sit with me. We've talked about honoring the Sabbath, honoring the house. Now we honor worship. Praise and worship should always be aimed at God, not the singer, not the musician, not the, uh, the sound engineer, not the well-engineered, well-produced concert setting we have come to associate with modern worship, whose techniques the, the rock concerts of the 70s and 80s pioneered. To which I say, once again, the church in trying to keep up with the world is 40 years behind. That's why we don't chase the world. We're always good at being 40 years out of style. How about we chase God? We're never going to pioneer anything the world has that the world would want, because they have it. But we can pioneer God, a move of God, the presence of God. We can pioneer that. The world doesn't have that. Their nightclubs don't have it. Their purple lights don't produce it. Their published, well-engineered, polished albums don't have it. But we can have it. We can have it with a little country church and one little old lady on the organ. We can have the presence of God. And those churches have more of the presence of God than the megaplex. The modern Christian industrial complex. Worship is not a concert. Churches would do well to remove any element that feeds that misunderstanding. There's nothing wrong with having the occasional Christmas concert or Easter cantata, but it should be advertised as such so as not to confuse God's people. Concerts, though, are not what we do on the Sabbath day. Let that be a Friday night. Let that, if you want to bring a special guest singer and do that, do that. But that's not our Sabbath worship. Worship leaders must be pure, holy, clean, not sleeping with the pastor or the youth leader. Worship leaders must know the Bible, not just Instagram and TikTok. You know who the worst doctrinally ignorant people are in the whole kingdom? It's worship leaders. It's their reputation. They don't know their Bible. Hopefully ours do. Hopefully those in our circles do, but generally speaking, your worship leaders don't know the Bible. Listen to the lyrics they write. Look at how they dress. Look at their Instagram posts. They're carnal. They're hedonistic. They're perverts making money off the church. Musicians, worship leaders, must keep their music diet clean and holy because whatever they're listening to throughout the week will come out when they try to play for God. Any of you young people, high schoolers, if you ever want to play on this worship team, get rid of your secular music. Because if I smell it once, you'll be done forever. Because it'll come out of you. I've got a friend, his music, when he produces it, sounds like a cross between Billie Eilish and Post Malone. And I know both those styles of music. And there's no reason a born-again, spirit-filled kid should be producing music that reminds me of Post Malone, who manifested a demon at a concert two years ago, and Billie Eilish, who clearly has a demon. And yet that's Christian music now. Why are we once again chasing the world? Because we don't have a walk with God. When you have a walk with God, you don't pattern yourself off of anybody. Worship leaders must be anointed, not just skilled. Worship leaders must be submitted to the pastor and his vision. The congregation must also come excited and ready to worship their God. God inhabits the praises of his people, and dead churches have dead worship. Honoring with our presentation. We know about this. We covered this one last week. In keeping with our theme of hallowing a Sabbath day, is it too hard to dress our best for one day a week, especially when we are dealing with the righteous judge, the man of war, the ancient of days, the general of heaven's armies, the self-existent one, as we meet with him in his holy house? Is it too hard to ask some Yahoo to take his hat off and treat this house different than the pizza joint? I don't think so. You're being rough. You don't know the God I deal with. 
you're being harsh. You don't have a clue. Now, we'll let the visitor come in, be visiting. Bring your koozie, bring your coffee. You've been trained by some jack-leg preacher somewhere else. I'll fix you if you'll stick around. But you've been here a couple weeks, and you still insist on that? Are you stupid? We have a high respect for God around here. A lot of you work in the court system. Can you just get away appearing before that judge just any old way? Will not the bailiff or the lawyer or the judge say, uh, yeah, take that off, fix that, cover that up, go back? Somebody told me they were in court, and the judge said, don't come back here. You can come in a suit. Threw them out of court. Don't appear before me dressed like that. That was a local story. We're just happy to have you. The first service or two, yes. We're just happy to have you. Then after that, this ought to be sticking to you real quick. (laughs) Should we not view the Sabbath as us meeting with our king in his holy court? Or are we still stuck in the sophomore baby Christian mindset of buddy Jesus? I am the friend of God. Let's go get a beer together. If we approach him each Sabbath as Esther approached Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, her husband, awaiting for the scepter to be extended our way, then God will be able to reveal to us how he in that moment will relate to us. If you know the story, everybody loves it. They don't ever bother getting anything spiritual out of it. Esther, no one could approach Xerxes. This is the king of the Persian Empire one of the greatest military leaders in world history. She's married to him, but you can only approach the king. If you bother to interrupt him without being called, if he doesn't extend that scepter of favor to you, you are killed. And so she's nervous because she needs to approach him, and she knows that if he doesn't extend that scepter, she could be beheaded or executed. But she needs a favor because she needs the Jews to be preserved. So she's risking her life. She prayed and fasted three days, had all the Jews in the empire do the same thing, that she wouldn't die because she's their only hope. But she, this is her husband, by the way. This is the guy she's intimate with. He favors her more than any of the other concubines, and she still fears. If we could approach God with respect and awe as the king of kings, not buddy Jesus, not friend of God, not even just Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, coming into his holy court as the righteous judge, the ancient of days, the man of war, not the prince of peace. Then when we come into his presence, he would then dictate to us how he wants to treat us that service. But do you see the arrogance of us always coming, expecting him to be who we want him to be? That is once again bringing Christ down from above. What if we come in here worshiping God as the King of kings and he says, now I want to show you I'm the healer. Line everybody up, I'm going to heal them. I want to speak to them about how I am the provider. And he, because he's God, gets to reveal to us how he wants to speak to us that morning. But the problem with the whole of the American experience now is he's buddy Jesus. He ought to be happy. I just showed up. And we only come to him in a one dimension, buddy. And that's why I reject the whole friend of God notion because our nation is incompetent when it comes to friendships. So let's just remove that for a season. Let that dry out. And let's not forget, he's not just friend. He's king. He's slave owner. That's what the word master means. The word Lord used over 700 times in the New Testament. Curios. It means he that owns another person. We call him Curios Jesus. We're acknowledging he owns us. We are his chattel, his purchased possession. When you're woke, you hate God because you're a slave. I'm happy to be a slave because that means he takes care of everything. I just got to plow. I just got to preach. I just obey whatever he tells me. He'll take care of everything else. We're still hung up on this damnable mindset that he's our buddy. He's the captain of the Lord's army. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd. He's the ancient of days, the righteous judge. He is all these things we don't trifle with. We come into him with favor. I know the Bible says, let us come into his presence with all boldness. That doesn't mean you come in there cussing, drinking, smelling like perversion. You come boldly when you're in sin. That's the context of Hebrews 9. We've lost it. 
I really don't think the church in America can be turned. They'll get bigger and bigger, and the remnant church will get hotter and hotter. We don't dictate which facet he will be in his house. That's a brat telling his mommy what she's about to do. Some preachers choose to promote a dressed-down culture, to which I say they should judge their hearts for the source of that deep, youthful rebellion. Even the preacher needs to eventually grow up and say, not my will, your will be done. And I don't care if a preacher dresses down just as long as he'll do his daughter's wedding in that dressed-down attire. And as long as he'll meet with the judge in that dressed-down attire, and as long as he'll appear in court in that dressed-down attire, I don't care if he dresses down, just be consistent in your standards. But he won't because he's a hypocrite in that arena. I had a friend of mine. He got to where he was so casual, hoping to grow his church, and all he did was bleed more people. Untucked shirts, maybe the occasional sport coat, casual shoes. That's how he preached three days a week, three services a week. And then I was at a funeral with him. And he came marching in before the corpse in a suit and tie with a little boutonniere. I almost almost thought he looked mafia. He was so sharp. Sharp red tie. I think it was a three-piece suit, a little boutonniere. I thought we were in some kind of mafia movie. And I was at the funeral to pay my respects to a mediocre Christian who had died. Mediocre Christian who had died. And here's my preacher friend giving more honor to a mediocre dead guy than the living Savior he preaches for. And my thought when I first saw him is, you do have a suit. Wow, and you're honoring a dead guy more with it than you do your Savior. And that may be why you're bleeding people everywhere. Even the preacher needs to grow up. I'm pretty sure Joseph wasn't much into Egyptian attire, but he still knew how to honor the God King when he was called into his court. Last section here on my notes. Honoring God's ministers. We just covered this. So all I'll add to it is this. We must honor what God honors, and God honors his ministers. The calling of ministry is nothing to mock, and the work and sacrifice it takes to be promoted from the calling to genuine selection is a process laity will never know absolutely anything about. Many are called to the ministry. Few are ever chosen. And callings do dry up because you only get so much time to qualify, and then you'll never finish your race. That's why Paul told the young man in Corinthians, you tell him to take heed to that call on his life. According to the Bible, there are several things you cannot do without a pastor. In no particular order, you cannot perfect or mature yourself without a pastor. You can't mature yourself. You can't perfect yourself. You can only grow so much without leadership. You cannot equip yourself to do the thing God has called you to without a pastor. You'll never finish your race without a pastor. Amen. You cannot correct or rebuke yourself accurately without a pastor. You cannot thoroughly feed yourself without a pastor. Our job is to feed you with knowledge and instruction from the Word of God. You can't watch over your own soul without a pastor because you'll be emotional sad depressed and your pastor say all right that's enough come out of it now all right that's too much happiness chill out man you you've gone beyond joyful now you're just weird dial that back a little bit why are you cast down get up out of that you can't as we said finish your race without a pastor if you could why would god assign them to the body and here's one that's kind of controversial but i i can't argue around it you can't tithe without a pastor. Because who are you going to present it to? Who's going to pray over it? Who's going to receive it? You tithe where you're fed. You tithe to your pastor, to his house, to his ministry. So who's going to receive it if you don't have a pastor? Why well, give 10% to the orphans? That's not a tithe. It's not God's tithe anyway. It goes to the house of God where he has called your name for him. So all that, you can't perfect, mature yourself, you can't equip yourself, you can't correct, rebuke yourself, you can't feed yourself, you can't watch over your soul, you can't finish your race, you can't tithe. This doesn't sound like someone we should address with the decorum equal to that of Todd, the co-worker we dread seeing every Monday morning. I so grieve for my friends who think it's totally cool to teach their people to call them Chuck. 
You don't even call your dad Chuck. Well, call, call no man father. Not even father? That's one verse. You'll fight for that doctrine, and there's over a hundred for tongues, and you'll pay no attention to that. Barna Research just released a poll that said 38% of U.S. ministers in 2021 had considered quitting. <laughs> Almost 40%. 40% of ministers in a massive data set from last year, 2021, had considered quitting the ministry. Why? What's so hard about the ministry? You. 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 I love you. I love the ministry. But ministry would be easy if it wasn't for you. But then again, you are the ministry. <laughs> Many Christian denominations and ministries offer their pastors three months sabbatical every seven years to try to fight this, which means I'm due for about a year off. But I don't ever think, I quit once for 5, 20, 30 minutes, seven years ago. I quit once because I was frustrated at the kids' wing remodel, and I was putting up all the, the, the flashing, the wainscoting, and nobody who told me they would be there was there, and I was just crabby and tired, and I threw down the Milwaukee drill, and I said, I quit. I hate this. I quit, and I went up to my office, and I played on the Internet for about 30 minutes or an hour, and I thought, I should go back to the ministry now. So I went back to the ministry. <laughs> put a couple more screws in, and then people started showing up. I think that's the only time I've quit ministry. I didn't even have time to type up a resignation letter because nobody would receive it but me anyway. And yeah. Three months every seven years to help preserve from burnout. And this is the guy that we want to just call Bob. Such disgusting disrespect. No honor. We call them pastor because Jesus Christ said, you're a pastor. We call them apostle because Jesus Christ said, you're an apostle. We call them prophet if it fits our setting because the Lord says, you're a prophet. We honor them by calling them bishop or elder or deacon. I love black churches because they know how to honor the house of God, the worship of God, the man of God. I mean, they got everybody as a sister, elder, deacon, bishop, Josephine. I dig it because at least they're respecting one another. And all my white friends whose churches are burning them out, they, they all say, we white folks talk in private about black people, if you didn't know that. It's all right, we get talked about in private by black folks. They say, man, black churches, they just know how to honor each other. And I tell them, you can do the same thing. You can teach your church to honor you. Like, man, they just take care of their pastors. You can teach that in your church if you want to. No, we just let it be a black thing. It's not a black thing, it's a God thing. So that concludes six or so weeks of honoring the things of God. We treat the things of God different because if you didn't know, God is different. And the more we honor him and sanctify him and venerate him in our heart and all his things in our heart, the more we'll be full of God and the more we'll be a reflection of who he is to the earth around us. When there's no distinction between us and the world, why would the world come to us? We need to have something they don't. They, they're already good at jazz. They're good at light shows. They're good at all this trendy stuff. Why are we trying to keep up with pagans going to hell? We should keep up with Jesus. Let us have something they could never have or buy or produce or hire. Let us have the presence of God. That's what we need. And we get it by honoring him. Amen?